Well, this morning in our series, Why Jesus Came, we come to the core. We come to what is at the center. I just want to say to you, if you don't get what is here, you will not get why Jesus came. And you will find a way of creating a way of being right with God that makes an detour around what is declared here. This is absolutely essential. It's the core of everything that the Bible says about the coming of God into our world and taking upon himself human flesh. If you were to get a group of students together who are serious students of the Bible and you were to ask them, what is the center of the reason for Jesus coming? They would say something like this. Jesus came to die for sinners. Jesus came to die in such a way that his death takes away forever the punishment of our sin and removes the power of sin from our lives and eliminates all of our guilt before God because God is gracious to us and merciful to us in the coming of Jesus. If you were to say to that group of students, now those are a lot of words, could you take all those words and put them into three words? They would say, penal, substitutionary, atonement. You go all the way back to the early days of the church and you will see this concept that as at the core of the Bible that unfolds for us the reason for God sending Jesus to the cross and this concept is there. I've written about it in the bulletin for this week as our reflection, so I hope you'll read that and think about what it means. We're going to talk about uh, just very briefly what it means as we get into the text of Isaiah, but maybe it would surprise you to know that this phrase throughout the history of the church has been debated Atonement means that God has a way of making us right with himself. That is what it means. It means that we are born under the judgment of God. We're not born as children of God. We're born alienated from God, hostile to God. And God makes a way for us to be brought into a right relationship with him. How does he do that? Penal. He punishes his son at the cross in your behalf and in my behalf. He does to Jesus what we deserve to have done to us. But Jesus takes our place. He assumes upon himself the punishment that we deserve, so he alone is our substitute. Paul puts it this way, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can enter into a right relationship with God by what God has done for us in Jesus 
And that is the only way we can enter into a right relationship with God because God crushed Jesus in our behalf. Penal, substitutionary atonement. But through the history of the church, and particularly in the 19th and 20th century, there has been division about this. There have been those in the church who've said, that's not loving. Uh, That is not gracious. It separated people. It separates people who call themselves moderates or liberals or traditionalists from those who are seeking to organize their lives under the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God because the nature of liberalism or the moderate way of looking at things or the traditional way of looking at things is that we have to play a part. We have to cooperate with God. And in order to be saved, we have to do something And yet those who are seeking to organize their lives under the authority of God's Word as inerrantist and those who believe in the infallibility and the sufficiency of Scripture see that what God did here, He did by His grace and mercy towards sinners. And what we bring, what we bring is only our sin. And God says, I forgive you of your sin and I cleanse you because you cannot pay that price. Only I can pay that price. It separates those, particularly in our American culture, who have a high view of ourselves, a very high view of ourselves. And there are those who say God makes us this offer. And we either say yes or no to it, as if we're capable of doing that. As if there's no sin in us that separates us from God What God offers us is what he's accomplished to redeem us in Jesus Christ. And he sends his Holy Spirit to bring us from dead sinners into life. And by his Holy Spirit, he shows us our sin. And he calls us just to lay our lives before Jesus and bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord. And then rise up from the ground to live like it, that he alone is Lord. Nowhere in the Bible is this concept of penal substitutionary atonement, what God has done in Jesus to save us. Nowhere is it taught more clearly than in Isaiah. So let's turn there this morning. Several years ago, we walked through Isaiah for, I don't know how long it took, but we, we walked through Isaiah for a season Isaiah was called of God to preach in three distinctive periods of time. He was called, first of all, to preach to people who had forgotten him and forsaken him. Oh, they said they had some relationship with God, but it was totally on their terms. God had blessed his people and He had prospered his people and they were enjoying an extremely good life. 
Their military was strong. Nobody would attack them because they were strong and they were secure and they were stable. Their economy was booming. They had everything they wanted. They began to forsake the worship of God. They began to make decisions themselves about when it was convenient for them to worship God. And God raised up Isaiah and said, go preach a message of judgment to them. And Isaiah preached a message of judgment to them. Judgment's coming if you do not repent, if you do not turn to God and trust God and lay your lives before God. And they said, look at our lives. We've never had more than we have now and we've never had it better than we have now. And you're telling us? That judgment is coming. And it did. Serious, severe judgment. But God wasn't done. He sends Isaiah now, while they're under judgment, to preach a message of hope. And that hope, God tells them, is not in them. It never was in them. It's not in their circumstances, their conditions. It's in God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40 and you will see the opening of this message. This message of hope is found from chapter 40 all the way through chapter 55. And from 56 to the end of the book, the message about, is about restoring God's people and God's purpose among his people. But listen to what... Isaiah preaches, beginning in Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, the judgment is ending, that her iniquities, her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Down at verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? This is it. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Here's our hope. Our hope is in the word of God, the truth of God. It stands forever. He comes to the end of this particular section. If you want to go there with me to chapter 55, where he tells us in this chapter that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And he says in chapter 55, verse number 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Our hope is in the Word of God, and at the center of the Word of God is the servant of God, or the Son of God. Everything in the Bible points us to this Son of God. 
Everything in the Bible points us to this servant of God. And Isaiah begins in Isaiah 42 to point us toward this servant. To tell us who he is. Look at chapter 42 of Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is all about the servant of God. It's all about the son of God. This is all about Jesus. Now, ancient Jewish people would read this and they would say, whoever this is, this isn't the Messiah. Because when the Messiah comes, he will be great and glorious. He will be mighty and majestic. He will be militarily triumphant and he will kill all people but Jews. And he will establish a kingdom in Jerusalem from which place he will rule. And he will rule for his people, the Jewish people, establishing his kingdom upon the earth. So you can imagine their surprise. When Isaiah continues to teach them about the servant, the son of God, who is to come, and he comes to what we know as Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and he begins to tell us that this servant whom God will send is one who will suffer and die in behalf of of his people. They didn't just dismiss that. They rejected it. So do some of us. Because some of us want a God who will fix all our problems. Who will solve all our struggles who will resolve all our issues, who will heal all our diseases, who will give us the good life and sustain it. That is not this God. Because he is the one who saves his people through sending his servant or his son to suffer. One commentator says the message of Isaiah chapter 52, 13 through 53, 12 is marked by two clear contrasts. One is between the servant's complete and total humiliation and his full exaltation. 
The other contrast is between the kind of person for whom the people were looking and the kind of person who came. But you and I do not conceive of our God by our traditions, do we? We don't conceive of our God by what anybody taught us. We turn to God's Word and we listen to God's Word and we pay attention to God's Word. And here it is. The one that God sent. There's a summary in verses 12 through or in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 2. It's a summary. Uh, this whole passage begins with a summary and ends with a summary. And we'll come to the ending summary in just a little bit. But here we begin with the beginning summary. And I just have to say I'm indebted to Ray Ortland Jr., who used to be the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta. And Mary Lynn and Tommy Edenfield had the unique privilege of sitting under his preaching and teaching, for which I have been envious for many years because he is one of the finest preachers of the Word of God in our country. He recently retired at age 70. But he lays out the structure that helped me see this passage. It begins with exaltation, this summary, exaltation, verse number 13, exaltation in verse 15, and right between Those two is humiliation. How does God exalt Jesus? By humiliating him in the eyes of humans. Behold, my servant, the Lord Jesus, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And when he comes again, he will be. And there will be those who did not recognize him or surrender to him who did not submit their lives to him, that on that day will submit and surrender to him and declare that he is Lord. He will be exalted. Uh, The last verse of the summary in verse 15 says, He will sprinkle many nations. He will bring washing and cleansing, so much so that kings of the earth shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. When he comes, they will see Jesus as Lord. We were nothing. We really had no power at all except that he gave that to us. We had no standing at all except he allowed it. He is the sovereign over the entirety of the universe. But while he was here, he was absolutely humiliated. Verse 14, many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Why do you think human beings walked by the cross and mocked him? Why do you think some of them walked by and spit on him? Why do you think they played games at the foot of the cross? Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked totally Inhuman. His whole body was bathed in blood. That crown of thorns was not made for a play at church. Those thorns penetrated his bow, the blood running down his face. His eyes were sunk way back in his head. His body 
almost completely emaciated, the pain so severe that when he pushed up on the cross with his feet to get relief, the pain in his lower extremities was so bad that he would have screamed out in that pain. He looked more like an animal. They were not relating to a human. They were relating to someone who was inhuman that had to have done something that was sinister and vile and gross even to be in that place. This is how he was seen. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. This humiliated one, the son of God, the servant of God, will be the exalted one in the end. And so holy and righteous is our God and so vile is our sin before him that it cost this. But then... Isaiah asked two questions that are really not two questions. It's one question, the first, the foundation for the second. Who has believed what he has heard from us? It's asking, in in essence, do you see that this one on the cross, this one who was marred beyond human semblance. This is the Son of God, and you owe Him your life. Do you believe that? Well, here's the answer. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I can tell you when you will believe it. I can tell you when God shows you that it is true. Not before. One of the worst places for a person to be, even in this room today, is for God to show you today that what is here is true. This is God's only way of saving sinners. And God comes into your heart by his spirit because he loves you. And you see that and he shows you your sin and calls you convictingly to come to Jesus, to come to Jesus. And you walk out of here saying, I'll wait. There's no greater grace than God knowing that we would never figure it out on our own that Jesus is the only way to God. We'd never figure it out, never. We would come up with some lesser ways, and we do. Just believe that Jesus died on the cross. Just believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Just believe that God loves you in Jesus. Just believe, just believe. We come up with all kinds of ways that we call gospel in order to keep from being confronted by this truth. Jesus lived. He grew up, verse 2. He, that is the servant, that is the son, that is Jesus. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. No mature plant, no plant worth examining, expecting fruit from a root out of dry ground that can't produce anything of worth. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty. There was nothing about him physically, psychologically, mentally, socially, nothing that would attract us to him. 
You know, I get bothered by movies that portray Jesus, that take the best-looking, most physically apt actor, and they make him Jesus. Some of you with me have been watching The Chosen. One of the things I've thought about The Chosen is, you know the guy that plays Jesus? He's not just handsome, he's pretty. Isn't he? You know who ought to be playing Jesus? If you want to be biblically accurate, in my opinion, the guy who plays Matthew. He's socially inept. He walks around with a... He stumbles all over himself. I'm thinking, that's Jesus. And nobody was attracted to him because of the way he was. He was despised. We're told that twice in verse 3 at the beginning and the end. He was dismissed as a nobody with nothing to offer. He was rejected by men. The essence of his life was he was a man of sorrows. He was filled with grief because he knew who he was and he knew why he came. He knew what he was about and he was dismissed. People hid their faces from him. The end of verse 3, he was despised and We esteemed him. That word esteemed is used twice. It's an accounting term. It means that the world looked at Jesus and said, whoever he is, whoever he is, by our logic and by our reasoning, he's not the Messiah. They dismissed him. Yet. See that word in verse 4, surely, yet. Here's the heart of Isaiah 53. It's all about penal substitutionary atonement. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs. The word is the word for sins. He bore our sins. He took upon himself on the cross our sins. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him. We looked at him logically and said, how can this be the Messiah? How can this be the one who saves sinners? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The word for afflicted is the word from which we get trauma. He was traumatized. But. Child of God, listen to these words. This is what Jesus did for you. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him by God's design was the punishment, the wrath of God being poured out on him so that the wrath of God could be removed from us, so that we could know peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We, we, this is not first person singular, this is plural, because Jesus went to the cross to purchase a people a people who would come together as a church and as a church give themselves to God in surrender and submission to Jesus. 
All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him. The Lord has laid on him. God, by his deliberate design, placed your sins on Jesus. And what did he do? You ever been treated unjustly? What's your first thought? I can tell you what mine is. I have to do this four or five, sometimes 25 or 30 times. I'll get you. God, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. But I really want to find a way to get. Why don't you get them, God? Then vengeance. Vindictiveness. Look at what Jesus did. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He knew who he was. He knew why he came. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off for the land from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Isaiah focuses the point here, starting with our and us and we and finishing with he went to the cross to bear the sins of his people. It's what we're told in Matthew. When they named him Jesus, he is the one who gives himself for the sins of his people. Now, you and I know this part of the story. Jesus died in complete poverty, abandoned as a criminal. But the text says, 800 years before Jesus came, the text said, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. So when Jesus died... They didn't know what to do with him. Who shows up? A rich man. Joseph of Arimathea took the body. Who was with Joseph of Arimathea? Nicodemus. At the cross when he died and all but John were gone, they were in hiding somewhere. There was a Roman soldier there who said, truly, this was, this is the Son of God. Is that what you see? When you look at the cross, do you see this is my only hope? Do you see when you look at the cross that Jesus died for you? That he took your place Listen, when you look at the cross, do you see that he died for you so that when you come to him, you die too? From the moment you come to him, your life is no longer ever again about you. It's not about your desires, your wants, your ambitions, your goals, your dreams. It's about him. He owns you. 
And you want your life controlled and consumed because you know what God did. And what God did, I want you to see this and then we're done. What God did was his will. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of God to crush him. You will never understand the cross if you try to get around this. It was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul, that is Jesus, makes an offering for guilt, he is dying for the sins of people so that the guilt of sin can be forever removed. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand because through the Lord Jesus, Jesus has purchased a people for himself. And one by one, those people come to Jesus by faith. They become a part of the church. And Jesus looks at them. Jesus looks at you and says, that's my offspring. That's my offspring. That's mine. And one day, one day you will enter into heaven and you will stand before whomever you stand before and you're there not by any works of righteousness that you have done. You're there because Jesus can look at you and say, he's mine, she's mine, I bought them. It's the will of God. It's also the work of God. Verse 11, out of the anguishes of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is a beautiful phrase because what it means is that Jesus has taken your sins, all of them, When you turn to Jesus in faith, you will never, ever be punished for sin. Never. The power of sin is taken out of your life forever. It has no control over you. Because of what God has done in Jesus for you. And when God looks at you, forgiven child, cleansed by his blood, when God looks at you, He doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in his son. He sees you the same way he sees Jesus. You're as precious to him as is Jesus. You're as loved by him as is Jesus. This is the work of God. It's finished. And the way of God is made clear here. Therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. There's coming a day when the work of Jesus completed at the cross will come to consummation when he comes again. He will gather together all of his people. He will give rewards to all of his people, and we together with Jesus under the sovereign power of God in the Anointing of the Holy Spirit will live together forever in the new heaven and the new earth. 
the way of God. And it happened because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was treated as a sinner so that by his grace, God treats all who believe as saints. Isn't that marvelous? That's how he sees you if you are his. And it's because he bore the sins of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. You know what I love about that last line? I don't want to push this text beyond where it will allow me to go. So if I'm doing that now, I pray for forgiveness. But when Jesus went to the cross, he was interceding for you. He was taking your place. He died. They put him in a grave. He was raised on the third day. He stayed here 40 days teaching the disciples. He ascended to the right hand of God. You know what he's still doing for you, child of God? Every day of your life. You know what he's doing for you? Every moment of your life. He's interceding. He's interceding for you. Robert Murray McShane, who was a great minister in Scotland, who died young, age 30, said, I could face... I could face anything in the world that comes my way if I knew every day that Jesus was in the next room praying for me. Well, child of God, I've got a better room than that. He's at the right hand of God the Father. And he's praying for you. Do you know that? There's nothing in all the world that should be able to shake your life when you know how much he loves you, what he's done for you, what he's doing for you right now. There is no love like your love for us. There is no grace like your grace, nor mercy like your mercy. And there is no promise like your promise to all who believe. I want to pray, God, for people in this room right now who are so captured by the world. So captured by the world. That what they have thought is, I will come to Jesus later. But Jesus, you're calling them now. So work in such a way out in, in hearts that there would be those today in these moments that would come to Jesus. In his name. Amen.